0: Thanks to the amazing response and support from the Truth and Justice audience, 4 Athletics has decided to sponsor two more episodes. And that means you get two more weeks of that amazing 15% offer that they're offering exclusively to my audience. There's a lot of stuff happening at 4 Athletics, so make sure to go check out their website, 4athletics.com, and check out all of their amazing, high-quality athletic apparel and notice how low the prices are. This week, 4 Athletics is featuring their Women's Crop Leggings. These leggings are made of the same great, non-sheer or see-through fabric as the full-length leggings, but the crop legging has a shorter inseam, which is a perfect length to keep you nice and cool during the summer. And they've also got some new products on the way. The support from the Truth and Justice audience has been so amazing that it has allowed 4 Athletics to develop some incredible new products. Coming soon for the ladies, they're going to have a new loose-fitting tank top and a new booty short. And for the guys, they have a new loose-fitting tank top coming. Everybody wants the opportunity to show off those guns before the hot weather of the summer is over. These new products, along with all of the other amazing products of 4 Athletics, are made to the highest quality standards you can imagine. And because of their crowdsourcing model, all of the waste of typical companies is cut out. By crowdfunding their athletic apparel line, you, the customer benefits by getting great quality at a low price. And Four Athletics believes that they are responsible for setting an example for a better way to do business for the environment. So please go check out Four Athletics Apparel at FourAthletics.com. And remember that's F-O-U-R athletics.com and use my promo code truth to get 15% off of their already incredibly low prices. That's forathletics.com and use my promo code truth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today, listeners, I am asking you for your help. The Edward AIDS case has been an absolute roller coaster for the past several months. Last week, I felt like we finally figured out exactly what happened on that crime scene. But thanks to your feedback, you, the listeners, crowdsourcing and giving me your feedback on that episode, I think we may be back to the drawing board on several things. So in the second segment of today's episode, we're going to revisit some of the items from the crime scene from last week, and I'm asking you for your input to see if we put all of our heads together if we can figure out exactly what happened the night Elnora Griffin was murdered. So please, if you haven't done so already, get on the website, truthandjusticepod.com, click the case documents in the Edward A. S. case, and follow along as we go through that second segment so you can help me figure this case out. It's going to take all of us to put this puzzle back together. But before we move on to the first segment of today's show, I wanted to let you all know that the new Truth and Justice apparel line is about to launch. As I'm recording this episode today, samples of the new Truth and Justice t-shirts and tank tops are on their way to my home. As soon as I get the samples and approve them, the new apparel site should be launching within the next week. And again, I want to thank all of you who have offered to volunteer your time and your resources to help get this project underway. But for right now, we have some business to attend to. This week, on Monday, July 25th, visiting Judge Carter in the Smith County Courthouse issued his ruling in the Carrie Max Cook Actual Innocence Hearing. And that's where we're going to start with today's show. I can't begin to explain how incredibly disappointed I am to tell you that on Monday, July 25th, Kerry Max Cook, for the time being, has lost his 40-year battle with the Smith County Injustice System. Monday afternoon, Judge Jack Carter announced that he will be recommending to the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals that Kerry's claim of actual innocence be denied. I do not have a copy of the full ruling. As soon as the ruling came down, I requested a copy of it through the Smith County Clerk's Office. On Tuesday, I was sent basically a signature page. The first page of the document I received is labeled page number 18. I asked the clerk where the rest of the ruling is, and she said that that's all the court would send them right now. I've never seen anything like this. It doesn't make any sense to me. I have no idea why the court wouldn't release the full ruling. But for now, all I have is the last two pages of this ruling. I'm going to read to you what's labeled as the conclusion. Judge Jack Carter writes, Had a jury heard all of this new exculpatory evidence, it may have found that the evidence did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Cook committed the murder. But that is not the test in this proceeding. It is this court's conclusion that a reasonable jury would not necessarily acquit Cook after hearing both new exculpatory evidence and the previous evidence of guilt. The new exculpatory evidence does not unquestionably establish Cook's innocence. It is not rationally irreconcilable with the old inculpatory evidence. This court's recommendation that relief for the actual innocence claim be denied. This ruling does not come as a big surprise, but it's incredibly disappointing nonetheless. Actual innocence is a very tough burden. You see, at a new trial, the burden of proof falls completely on the prosecutor. They have to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that a defendant committed the crime in question. But once convicted, that burden shifts completely onto the defendant. And in an actual innocence claim, the defendant has to prove, not just beyond a reasonable doubt, but through a preponderance of the evidence that they are unquestionably innocent. Meeting this burden is extremely difficult, even with a full hearing. But in Carey's case, due to the deal that was struck in early June, it was even more difficult, because no witnesses could be called, the entire case hinged upon a one-hour oral argument in a judge's review of the record. Had Carey's new lawyer been able to put that Smith County Reserve Deputy Sheriff on the stand, the man who said that Carey Cook confessed to him, and questioned that person in front of the judge, and present other evidence to try to impeach him, I think we may have ended up with a different ruling. At that point, the judge could make a recommendation based on his assessment of the deputy's credibility. But since he was not allowed to do that, he could only make his ruling based on the record. The record shows that this deputy claimed that Gary Cook confessed to him. And there's just no way to prove that that didn't happen without putting him on the stand. So like I said, this ruling does not surprise me. And I will also say that I do not blame Judge Jack Carter for this ruling. I don't necessarily think that he got it wrong. He was handcuffed by that deal. So the big question is, what happens next? One of the most disgusting parts about this is the fact that after working the deals with Kerry Cook's attorneys, Matt Bingham not only went in and opposed his actual innocence, but now has began making statements to the press that they're evaluating their options and may possibly be preparing for a new trial. That's right, you heard me correctly. Bingham is on record saying that they may retry Kerry Max Cook now. Now, as a quick refresher and reminder as to how this situation got to where it is, in 1997, Kerry Max Cook's last conviction was thrown out. In 1999, Kerry agreed to take an Alford plea, where he pled no contest to the charges in exchange for time served. So for the last 20 years, Kerry has been out and free with no worry of prosecution, and he's just been fighting for his actual innocence to clear his name. But now because of this half a deal that went through with Matt Bingham, Kerry's conviction has been thrown out. That means his Alford plea has been thrown out, so he's back to that pre-indictment phase again. Bingham's office very well could take Carrie Max Cook back to trial and try to send him back to death row again for a third time. Bingham has made these statements even after hearing the new analysis of the crime scene and listening to the interview with Michael Valentin, Luella Mayfield's son, saying that she had confessed to him. I have not heard anything back from Bingham's office on this. I don't know if they're investigating this, if they're trying to track down any leads. The only thing he's saying publicly is that they may try Carrie Max Cook again. While I do believe that if they were to take Carrie back to trial, that we would destroy them, and Carrie would absolutely be acquitted, it doesn't make me any less disgusted that Bingham is even considering retrying Kerry Max Cook. But I guess that's just par for the course for Smith County and Justice. With Carrie's case being in the position that it is in right now, we need to start to think about what are our options and where do we go from here. I'm convinced that the Smith County District Attorney's Office does not have any plans or any intentions to do anything to find the actual truth in this case. It's going to be left up to us. Without money for attorneys and private investigators, Carrie is basically left hung out to dry at this point. However, what Kerry does have is a truth and justice army that is 200,000 plus strong. I believe that we, together, can find the evidence necessary to clear Kerry's name and prove his actual innocence. If Kerry is not retried again, his case is not dead in the water. It's close to it, but it's not dead. The only way that we could re-raise Kerry's actual innocence is to provide new and convincing, compelling evidence that proves his innocence. And that is exactly what I intend to do. It'll probably be a little while before you hear me talking about Carrie's case on the show again. The reason for that is I do not want to expose our hand or give up any strategies that I may have. But just know that in the background, behind the scenes, I will be searching for this new evidence. Carrie Max Cook did not kill Linda Jo Edwards. But someone did, and I don't intend to stop until we can prove who actually did it. This is not over. This past week has been an amazing reminder of how powerful this crowdsourcing method of investigation really is. Last week, I laid out a deeper analysis of the crime scene of Elnora Griffin. I explained the evidence, I put photos up on the website, and I generated a hypothesis and threw it out to all of you. This week, I have received incredible response from hundreds of listeners who think that I may have gotten it wrong. And after considering what all of you have told me, I think you may be right. The most common question that I've received over the last week is if Elnora was such a neat and tidy person why would she spit onto her nice, clean, white comforter? Now, before I move on with the rest of this discussion, again, I want to give a disclaimer that the following material is of a highly adult and downright disgusting topic. These last couple of weeks have been extremely uncomfortable for me. I've had to research and talk about a lot of things that I would rather not even think about. In fact, if Becky didn't know what I did for a living, I think that my web browser history alone might be cause for divorce. But that being said, the following discussion is necessary for us to figure out exactly what happened on that crime scene. And I think that we're getting closer. So please listen carefully to the rest of this episode as I lay out some new information and come up with a few more possible theories. And then email me this week at theories at truthandjusticepod.com and let me know your thoughts. It's going to take all of us to figure this out. Now, let's start with a question about why someone would spit on the comforter. It goes without saying that, as a man, this is something that I've never had to deal with. I can't pretend to be in the mindset of a person that's in the situation that Elnora may have been in. Like I said, this is uncomfortable. Uh, However, I am going to try to get through the rest of this episode without saying the word panties even once. So you're all welcome for that. But this thought process had not occurred to me. I was simply looking at evidence and trying to piece together a scenario. But it made sense to me that Elnora would have spit the semen out and then went and rinsed her mouth out or brushed her teeth. That would explain everything. It would explain why the semen was in a puddle rather than spurts on the bedspread. It would also explain why the rape kit didn't show any semen in her mouth, anus, or vagina. But I've had several, and I mean hundreds of women email me and tell me that if a woman wanted to spit that out, and she was knelt down right next to the bathroom, she wouldn't have spit it on her nice white comforter. She would have turned around and went and spit it into the sink. Considering that I have no experience in this manner, I'm going to go ahead and take all of your word for that. I think that you're probably right. So let's re-examine how that semen got there. Let's first look at a scenario where it was spit out. If it was indeed spit out, why would it be right there? I think that we have a couple of different scenarios that could lead to this conclusion. One of the scenarios being that if the individual that Elnora was having this encounter with did have some sort of disorder or drug use or STD that caused the semen to be brown in color, I've also read that there's a possibility that it would have a very pungent odor and or taste. So it's possible that when it got into her mouth, she was shocked by a gross smell or taste and there was a gag reflex, and she just spit it out immediately. That may explain why it was spit out onto the comforter. I'm not saying that's the most likely scenario, but it's certainly a possibility. And while we're on that topic, one of the other questions that came up, uh, actually just by one person, but there was one person that has asked me several times why I believe that that stain was semen. It looks way too dark brown. This person believes that that semen was actually another feces stain. What I can tell you is that it is indeed a semen stain. After going through all of the trial testimony this week of Jason Waller, looking through all of the lab reports, the crime scene diagrams, and examining every single inch of that comforter from every single angle, that stain is indeed the semen stain. It was sent to the Texas Department of Public Safety Laboratory and tested, and it is indeed semen. However, there is something that should be noted. In Exhibit 20 on the website the picture where you can see the camera flash, the stain does look very dark. But what you'll also notice from that picture is that the carpet looks almost black. But when you look at the carpet from other photos, from other angles, the carpet is actually a burnt orange or reddish color. When we compare these photos, I think it's safe to assume that that semen stain is not actually as dark as it appears in the photo. If the burnt orange colored carpet appears to be black, then that may mean that everything in that photo looks darker than it actually is. And remember, we're dealing with the exposure of the photo, the age of the photo, and the fact that the photo was scanned in. So I believe that it does have a brown coloration to it, but it's not as dark as it appears in the photo. And like I said, I examined every single inch of that comforter, zoomed in from every picture of it from every angle, and there is exactly one stain on that comforter and that's the stain shown in Exhibit 34. Also, you'll notice in Exhibit 34, that's the close-up photo of the stain, that the substance that made that stain was liquid, or fluid at least. You can see where the liquid had absorbed into the comforter and it's starting to spread around it. And so basically with all this, to sum this up, what I'm telling you is Exhibit 34 and the stain shown in Exhibit 20 with the camera flash is indeed the semen stain. There's no question about that. So getting back to how it got there. So again, we have one option that maybe there was a foul odor and or taste of the semen, and that's why it was spit onto the comforter. Another suggestion that was thrown out was the idea that maybe Elora was being forced to perform oral sex. That maybe the struggle had began before the sexual encounter. Maybe she was being held at knife point. And this theory actually makes a lot of sense. The only thing that doesn't add up is that there was no semen found in her mouth. So again, I think that we would have a scenario where she would have had to have rinsed her mouth out or brushed her teeth afterward. And if the struggle had began before that, I would find it odd that the killer would allow her to go clean herself up before then re-engaging in the attack and killing her. But then there's also the possibility that she did a very good job of spitting everything out, and she didn't rinse her mouth out, and there just was no semen left in her mouth. I don't know how accurate those tests are or how accurate they were back in 1993. But the reason that I think that this idea that the struggle had began before the sexual encounter occurred is because of something that was caught by listener Bob Carlson. Bob sent me an email on Sunday and asked me to look closer at the phone jack in the kitchen. So of course you remember that the phone from the kitchen had been ripped off the wall and was sitting on the floor in the bedroom. But what Bob noticed in the close-up photo of the phone jack in the kitchen is that the top post had been broken off. So for those of you that never had or don't remember how these wall phones hung on the wall back in the early 90s, you had a phone jack on the wall and there were two posts, one at the top and one at the bottom. The phones would normally have a very short cord, maybe two or three inches. You would plug the cord into the jack and then slide the metal backing of the phone over the two posts and then slide them down to lock it into place. In order to remove the phone, you would slide it up and then pull it off the wall and unplug it. But in this case, we see that the cord had been ripped. The plug end of the phone cord is still in the jack. So we already knew that it had been ripped away from the wall. But what I hadn't noticed before is that that top post is broken off. What that tells us is that the phone was ripped straight off the wall. The killer didn't slide the phone up in order to pull the phone off. This was a significant find. Because what that tells us is that the process of ripping the phone off the wall would have been loud it would have made a loud noise when that phone snapped off the wall and snapped that metal post in half when it was ripped off. This knowledge that ripping this phone off the wall would have made a significantly loud noise tells us a couple of things. Number one, it does a lot to move us away from the two-killer theory. Remember, one of the scenarios would be that while Elnora was in the bedroom or with someone, that a third party came into the trailer, took the phone off the wall, and carried it into the bedroom and began the attack. The problem with that is, I think that it's almost impossible that the people in the bedroom wouldn't have been alerted to the fact that someone was in the trailer already. I would think that someone would have walked out of the bedroom and headed towards the kitchen and confronted the killer somewhere in the living room, not all the way back in the bedroom. And so if we're looking at a theory where there's only one person in the trailer, only one killer, and we consider the semen stain, if it was indeed from oral sex that was spit out onto the comforter. That likely would have been done unwillingly, meaning Elnor was being forced to perform the act. I think there is a distinct possibility that the confrontation and or struggle began in the kitchen. Remember, we have the toilet seat up in the back bathroom, the one back by the kitchen. We have the two chairs pulled out around the dining room table as though people were sitting there talking. We have a full meal prepared on the stove for someone. We know that Elnor was sitting in that kitchen with someone. We know that there was a man in the house who had left the toilet seat up. We know that she was preparing that meal for someone. When we consider all of these facts together and add in the call from Kubia, the Kubia call would have drawn attention to the phone. So imagine a scenario where Elnora is sitting talking to someone. The phone rings, she answers it, and the person sitting there hears her tell Kubia that she's talking to Edward. That could have been what began the altercation. Now, it could have been the killer telling her to say it was Edward sitting there so that no one would know he was there. Or he could have heard her tell Kuby that Edward was there, and he was pissed because she was lying about the fact that she was with him. Maybe he was asking her, what do you have to hide? Why aren't you telling her the truth? Something along those lines. But I think it's likely that the phone call was the trigger. And considering that the phone call was the trigger... It's not a crazy hypothesis to consider that the first move made by the killer was to rip that phone off the wall. Now let's move back into the bedroom. Several listeners also told me that it's extremely odd that Elnora would have taken off all of her clothes just to perform oral sex, especially when we consider that we think that the killer never took his clothes off, just pulled his pants down. Remember we have the shoe or boot print on the pillow next to the bed, and we also have the fact that the killer had a knife in his hand. Now the knife could have been taken from the kitchen, we can't rule that out, but these couple of facts together would certainly lean us towards the idea that the killer was still dressed. Also we have the fact that all of Elnora's clothes were found underneath the comforter, which would mean the killer either would have had to have gotten undressed in a different part of the bedroom and there's not a whole lot of floor space there, or they would have had to lift up the comforter to get their clothes out from underneath it and then placed it back down over the top of everything else. But let's consider for a moment that the killer was fully dressed, other than pulling his pants down, and Elnora is stripped nude. I'm told by pretty much every single female listener that has emailed me, this is just not a likely scenario. If the only thing that's going to be happening that night is some quick oral sex, and the man isn't even going to take his clothes off, I've been told that it's very unlikely that Elnora would strip completely nude to perform the act. So this again leads us further down the direction that the entire act may have been forced. That the argument, confrontation, struggle began back in the kitchen. This would also explain why the phone was placed neatly on the floor and not thrown on the floor. The two begin having an argument in the kitchen. The man is pissed. He rips the phone off the wall. Either grabs a knife or just with physical strength forces Elnora back into the bedroom. He follows behind her carrying the phone. As they walk in he sets the phone on the floor forces her to undress and perform this act on him. At this point, Elnora would not be thinking clearly, and I think that it's more likely, at least in the scenario, that she would spit the semen out onto the comforter. And without getting into specifics, there are certain things that could be done, especially in a forced situation, that could have caused her to have gag reflex and not even have a choice about spitting it out. So this is another scenario for us to consider. Now, when we're thinking about that scenario, another question that's come up from several listeners is why would the killer detach the phone from the kitchen, but leave the one in the bedroom right next to the bed alone? And the answer to that question is, he didn't. First of all, we don't know if the phone in the bedroom was connected. And unfortunately, there's a lot of things about this crime scene that we just don't know. And that was due to some extremely shoddy and lazy police work by Jason Waller. Jason Waller is the one that investigated the crime scene, and there's a lot of things that he could have done, and should have done, that would answer a lot of these questions for us. Regarding the phone, Waller testified at trial that he couldn't remember if the phone was connected. He said he thinks it was disconnected or thinks that it wasn't disconnected, but he couldn't be sure. The fact that he didn't verify this and document it is just ridiculous and it's unacceptable. And because of his laziness, we'll never know whether the phone actually was disconnected. But I do think that it's safe to say that it was at least attempted to be disconnected. When you look at the crime scene photos, what you'll notice about that phone is that the cord that attaches the phone to the wall is in front of the nightstand. Now, this is a normal receiver phone that just sits down. It doesn't hang on a wall. sits on the table. These old phones did not have a cord that plugged into them. The cord was hardwired and then had a male end on the end of it that would plug into the wall. So you couldn't just unplug it from the phone. You would have to rip the wire out or disconnect it from the wall. This phone did not have a long cord on it. The cord was just long enough for it to sit there on the nightstand. The jack itself is actually behind the bed, down low to the floor. In a normal position, the cord would have went off the back of the nightstand and then down to behind the bed. But in the crime scene photos, we see that cord out in the front of the nightstand going over the drawer that pulls out of it. Which seems to indicate that the killer picked up the phone and tried to disconnect it. And again, we don't know if he succeeded. He could have gave it a yank and yanked it out of the wall from behind the bed. But we know for sure that the cord is not where it is supposed to be. Nobody keeps their phone on their nightstand stretched out in front of the drawer so that the drawer can't open. And again, this cord is not a long cord where someone would take the phone and walk to a different part of the room and set it down. It was just long enough to sit there on the nightstand. So the killer ripped the phone off the wall in the kitchen... And it looks like they attempted to disconnect and maybe succeeded in disconnecting the phone in the bedroom. In this scenario, by the way, I want to point out is eerily similar to the story that Francis Johnson told Ed Aites in the prison. That he and Elnor were having a fight. There was an argument. He beat the hell out of her. And they had sex. And then he left. Now, of course, if he was the one that committed the murder, he wouldn't add the fact that he slit her throat to the end of that story. But there are several elements of his story that seem to fit with this new scenario. Another question that has come up frequently is regarding the flash reflection on the semen stain. Several people have asked me how I can think for a second that that semen would still be wet. Charles Aldrich told us last week that the blood was dry around Elnora. And the question is, if the blood was dry, why would the semen still be wet? And so I guess I should correct my terminology. Wet is a strong word. I think tacky would be a better word. First of all, the blood was on carpet. Very fibrous and porous material, so it would have soaked into it. Whereas the semen stain is on a comforter, it looks like it's a poly-cotton blend. A much tighter knit. It wouldn't absorb any kind of liquid. But when I said wet, I probably did use the wrong term. More so what I was getting at was that this is not an old stain on a comforter that had been through several launderings. This was a fresh new stain. The semen was in a puddle, and semen is not liquid, but it's fluid, meaning it does have a liquid-type base to it, but there is also substance to it, and in a large puddle like that, it would become tacky and then eventually almost solidify. So the fact that the camera flashed off of it tells us that it's fresh. It had not been washed. It was still in the process of drying out. So I just wanted to make that clarification. The big thing we're looking for here is to prove that that was not an old stain. It was new, it was fresh, and it was not even completely done drying yet. Now the last scenario that is perhaps the most disturbing scenario of all is a scenario that the rape kit got it wrong and Elnora was raped and in fact was forced to have anal sex. I do think that we can rule out normal vaginal intercourse. The reason for that is, if Elnora had had normal vaginal intercourse, there would most certainly be semen detected inside, unless the killer was wearing a condom. She wouldn't have been able to rinse that out, there was nothing to force it out, there still would have been plenty of semen detected in there. In the oral sex scenario, the semen could not be present because of spitting or washing her mouth out. And then we have this anal sex scenario. And I know I've said it before, but I'm going to apologize again for even talking about this, but it has to be done. We're all aware of the fact that there was defecation found all over the floor in the bedroom. One of the things that I was researching this week is whether or not it is common, or at least possible, for anal sex to cause defecation. And what I found out through my research is that it's not common per se, but it's also not completely uncommon. That right after anal sex, that the person that received it will defecate right afterwards. And from the articles and forums that I read, It sounds like the most likely time when that would happen is if someone has never done it before or they're very uncomfortable with it, which would fit a scenario of it being forced. So how would this scenario play out? Well, if that is indeed what happened, and Elnora Griffin was anally raped, and she then immediately after sat down on the comforter, there not only could, but there likely would have been drainage. This could also explain the brown color to the semen stain. And then we have the fecal material all over the floor. Once Elnora stood up right there next to the bed, we know that she defecated. Now, our theory has been that she was attempted to be strangled, and we do have some severe petechia in her eyes. All of the blood vessels in her eyes were ruptured. That is consistent with someone being strangled, and so is the defecation. But defecation is something that can happen when you're being strangled, but it's not something that always happens when someone is being strangled. But if the person being strangled had just been anally raped, the likelihood of that occurring increases tenfold. And you can use your imagination to figure out why. But I'm wondering if what we might be looking at is a combination of both of the scenarios we've just discussed. Forced oral sex and forced anal sex. The reason I say that is because we do have the patiki of the eyes. It's very likely that Elnora was choked or strangled in one way or another. But what we don't have is any ligature marks on Elnora's neck or throat. Ligature marks are bruises that will appear on a person's throat if someone strangles or attempts to strangle them. For example, if someone strangles you with their hands, you can oftentimes make out the exact handprint of the person that was squeezing them. Or if they use a rope or a cord, you can see those ligature marks. There are no ligature marks indicated in Elnora's autopsy report, and earlier today I re examined the autopsy photos. And I also, now granted, I'm not trained in this field, but I have seen plenty of photos of ligature marks. I do not see any ligature marks on Elnora's throat. Now, one side of her throat was slit wide open, so of course you wouldn't see anything there. But the left side of her throat is left untouched, and there are no ligature marks present. Now, this could mean that the attempted strangulation was done by someone's arm, like the inside of their elbow. And the strangulation did not compress Elnora's throat or her airway, but just block the carotid artery and the jugular vein, causing the increased blood pressure in her head, causing the petechia. It's possible that that scenario would not leave any ligature marks, so we can't rule that out. But I believe that another scenario that we have to at least consider is that the petechia in the eyes could have been caused by forced oral sex. Extremely violent, horrible forced oral sex. So the point of this segment was not to give you answers. The point of this segment was to ask you questions. I need your help with this. I need all of us to put our heads together. I need all of your minds to think about this and help us put together a scenario that works. These are the elements that we're dealing with. A phone that was ripped off the wall so violently that it snapped the metal post off. We still have this semen stain on the bed that appears to be brownish in color, but probably not as dark as we see it. We know that it's a fresh stain. We know that Elnora Griffin was completely nude when this sexual encounter occurred, and we have evidence that seems to point to the fact that the killer was fully clothed. We have hemorrhaging in the blood vessels of Elnora's eyes, but we have no ligature marks on her neck. We have feces all over the floor right next to the bed. We have the phone cord for the bedroom phone pulled in front of the nightstand covering the drawer, and we still have the pillow placed on the floor at the foot of the bed. So I want you all to consider all these elements and send me in your theories as to what you think happened. One of us may not be able to figure this crime scene out, but all of us can. This week, as I was reading through trial testimony and forensic analysis reports and interview transcripts, I just became more and more and more frustrated. This entire case just sickens me. I'm disgusted by the dirty tricks that were played by the prosecutors. I'm disgusted by the inadequate job that the defense attorneys did. But more importantly, right from the beginning, I'm absolutely disgusted by the way this case was investigated. None of this would have ever happened if Jason Waller and Dale Hugel had done their job properly. Let me give you a brief example of what I'm talking about. I want to read you an excerpt from Dale Hugel's supplemental report. And by the way, this is dated February 22, 1994. He wrote this report seven months after the crime occurred. And it's obvious he wrote the report to make it look like Edward Aids was the only possible viable suspect. And all signs pointed to him. In this paragraph, Huckel writes, The feces samples were sent to the FBI to be analyzed and test performed by Richard Rehm of the FBI, and the results were that the feces samples from the house and from Edward Shoes are of human origin. There's just one problem with this. That is what Dale Huckle testified to at trial, and that is what the prosecution said in their closing arguments, except for that's not what Richard Rehm's report says. Let me read to you verbatim The entire extent of the analysis on the scrapings from Ed's shoes. First of all, in this report, the scraping from Ed's shoes are identified as Q1. And they're described as debris from right shoe. And the result of the examination reads, protein of human origin was identified in specimens Q1 and Q2. That's it. Nowhere on this report does it say that that was feces on Ed's shoes. It is identified as debris, and the result is that protein of human origin was identified in the specimen. That protein could be anything. Ed could have stepped on gum. Someone could have spit on the floor. Ed was a basketball player. And when I used to play basketball, your shoes would get dusty and would slip on the floor. So several times during practice or games, we would lick our palms and wipe the bottom of our shoes. It would make them a little more tacky on the court that protein could have come from anything. But Hugel wrote it into his report that the FBI said that it was human feces when the report says nothing of the sort. And like I said, he also testified to the fact that it was human feces. But this report was never submitted into evidence during Ed's trial. And Richard Rehm was never called to testify about his report or about the tests he ran on that specimen at trial. The linchpin of the state's case against Edward Aates was the supposed human feces found on the bottom of his shoe, and it was presented to the jury with nothing more than smoke and mirrors. The prosecution could not put this report into evidence, and they could not have Richard Rehm testify, because he would have said exactly what I just said. This test does not say that that was feces. The test just says there were human proteins detected in it. So instead they had Dale Huckel testify, and since the defense didn't object to that, the prosecution was able to present that as evidence to the jury during their closing arguments. And it was all a lie. This is just one example of the misconduct that went on in this case. And so what I'm going to do next is break down every step of this investigation from start to finish. Next week on Truth and Justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget you can support Johnny by going to iTunes and downloading the Truth and Justice, the music soundtrack. You can also purchase the songs at truthandjusticemusic.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo and also for helping with our new t-shirt company to come up with the new designs for the t-shirts that should be launched next week. I want to thank all today's sponsors, 4 Athletics, Blue Apron, and Shakeology. Don't forget, you can purchase your Shakeology at Becky's Faith and And if you have any questions about it, go ahead and send Becky an email at Becky at Becky's Faith and But most of all, I want to thank all of you. What we're doing here is not just entertainment, this is a movement. It is a movement that is affecting real change in the criminal justice system, and it is not something that I can do alone. Your contributions are what is driving this forward. And I want to thank you for all the emails, tweets, Facebook messages, for all of your thoughts, theories, and ideas. And I want to thank all of you who have pledged donations to the Patreon page. And again, if you're interested in doing that, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. Make sure you keep sending in all those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send me in your new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod.